Welcome back to Concordia Journal Currents. I'm Travis Scholl, editor of Concordia Journal and ConcordiaTheology.org. With us here today is Bob Freiling, writer of the Leadership Ellipse and publisher of InterVarsity Press. So good to have you with us today, Bob. Oh, thank you, Travis. Tell us today why you decided to write a book on leadership. Well, I've been involved in Christian leadership for many years, and I found that is, as I tried to be an effective Christian leader, uh, I really had tension and struggle with what it meant to be Christian and a leader. Uh, I went to a number of seminars and read many books on leadership that were extremely helpful in terms of how do I lead, the, the principles of leadership, uh, the various uh, aspects of getting the right people on the bus and all those kinds of things were very valuable, but they didn't touch issues of the soul, uh, what was happening inside of me. And so I spent time uh, reading books um, by Eugene Peterson and many others and go to retreats and I found that those times were tremendously valuable. Um, I felt nourished and refreshed, but they didn't seem to have much to do with my nine to five job of actually being involved with people on a daily basis. So I felt a need to try to uh, understand that better. So I, I was trying to bring these two worlds together. I was asked to speak to a number of pastors and ministry leaders about, actually they asked the question related to busyness. They found that life was too busy. But I found that busyness was more of an uh, on-ramp into this, this issue of how do we connect our inner world and our outer world. Hmm. And after I, I gave those lectures, a number of people came up and said, oh, you ought to put that in a book. So that forced me to say, well, maybe this is something that could be helpful to other people. And that's what triggered the, the writing project. Well, and I found that uh, the image you use is a very provocative one, the image of the ellipse. Mm -hmm. and so talk a little bit about what that, that means to you. Sure. Well, a number of years ago, Peter Senge uh, wrote a book called The Fifth Discipline. And he talked about the importance of having a, a mental model. Mm -hmm. uh, and sports analysts often do this. They talk about Tiger Woods uh, anticipating or picturing where his uh, shot is going to land because he has a mental image. And I realized that my mental image of leadership was a bullseye. Uh, to do the bottom line, to just get it done, and that that was not very realistic. It was not true to life. Uh, that there was things that are more complicated than that, particularly as related to the inner life and the outer life. And I thought of the geometrical image of an ellipse, which is really, if you picture a circle with uh, elongated, and mm -hmm. there's two focal points to it. And th both focal points are necessary to create mathematically the ellipse. And to me, they represented the inner life, my, my walk with God, my spiritual life of the soul, and my outer life, how I lead, how I relate to people, the decisions I make. And that gave me a mental model that both of these things are important. They're not separate. They're not two bullseyes that somehow right. you just jam them together, but they need to be collaborative with each other to be, to be helpful and important. Well, and it strikes me that's a much more holistic image of what yes. life is really all about. Right, and even theologically, uh, it's true, you know, is Jesus God as uh, divine or is he human? Well, he's both. That's orthodoxy, yeah. and you right. have to hold both of those in not just tension, but intersecting yep. of, of yep. who Jesus was. Yeah. That's what communion is all about. Yes, yeah. Yeah, yeah. very much yeah. so. You, you almost called this book the Peacock's Prayer. Yes. Talk a little bit about what, what the peacock means. Well, um, a number of years ago, I read a poem by a French woman uh, called The Peacock's Prayer. And uh, in it, she put in the, the mouth of this uh, imaginatory, imaginative peacock uh, this prayer to God. 
And the peacock was very much aware of its beautiful plumage, its external appearance, and how everyone was looking at it. We, we talk about um, the uh, peacock's pride, you know, proud as mm, a peacock, right, that kind of right. thing. Um, but the peacock also wrestled with how ugly its voice sounded. And uh, the prayer of the peacock was, uh, Lord, uh, it would be much better if you had given me a nightingale's voice, that that would be more properly attired. Uh, and the prayer ends up with this uh, uh, request, Lord, grant me a day, a heavenly day, when my inner and outer selves will be reconciled in perfect harmony. Yeah. And that's, that, to me, that's the prayer of every leader, every pastor, whether it's articulated or not, is that we want to be congruent people, we want to be whole people, and that who we are on the inside is who we are on the outside, and that they really uh, give us an authenticity that is not fake, it's not manipulative, it's not super spiritual, it's not overly rationalistic, it's, it's right. who we are before God. Well, and it seems like, you know, especially these days, and, you know, most of our audience is pastors, mm -hmm. but the business world and, and the ministry world, there's so much pressure, especially right. even in the last couple of years with the recession and every, all the pressure um, that's being put on people, especially leaders. Mm -hmm. There is so much pressure that the outer self has to be doing so many Right. things yeah. um, and the the things that you advocate in your book how how do you get to that point to to be able to do things that you advocate in your book like practicing a sabbath like journaling mm -hmm. um, how do you get to that point to be able to be doing those to be able to have those sorts of practices to find that kind of congruence between the inner and the outer life sure well one of the reasons i wrote the book was to give people permission to mm. name those issues mm. Mm. and also even to do them in community uh, for instance on, on the practice of the sabbath i know that's a much more difficult issue for for pastors than mm -hmm. it is for people in the marketplace but uh one of the practices i do uh is i i just don't use electronic communication on sunday mm. no email wow. um but we have agreed as a community within InterVarsity press uh no one to use email uh, on Sunday because I was finding I go into work on Monday morning and I was behind the eight ball because everyone had sent these emails and given me a lot of work to do and uh, so I had to work on Sunday to catch up to stay in top, in top, on top of things um, but in, as we did that in community and agreed we're not going to add work to each other hmm. on the Sabbath it's not just us taking rest but helping other people take rest right that right. that reinforces the principle and that was extremely valuable hmm yeah, that, that's, that's important to know that the community, uh, you know, I've thought about that sometimes when uh, I, I take rest on the weekend, but if I go shopping, mm -hmm. that means I'm reinforcing that somebody else has to be working right. while I'm resting. Yeah. And so, well, should I really be doing that? Yeah. Um, and what you're saying is, well, if I'm resting, then I need to be enabling other people to be resting as well. Right, it's interesting you raise the issue of commercial, because mm -hmm. I find that if I'm doing bills or if I'm shopping, that's not particularly restful right. myself. Right. And I don't want to be legalistic about it, but right. we do try to protect, I mean, we may go out for dinner or something like that, but we do try not to shop normally or just stay away from things where you're always thinking about money or uh, production of having right. to you know, make something happen. <laughs> right, right, right. Okay, you're the publisher of IVP Press. You're on the board of InterVarsity Christian right. Fellowship. You just wrote a book. You're a very busy person. Uh, why is it so important? You use the phrase renewing your mind. What, mm. Why is that so important when you're a very busy person? 
Well, I think right now we live in a culture that is almost anti-intellectual or challenges uh, thoughtful understanding of life through the mind. Uh, there's a lot of data and people are assimilating data, but to really take time for mental renewal uh, takes energy. Mm -hmm. um, and I think what Paul speaks about in, in Romans 12, that this is the root that we're transformed by the renewal of our minds. I quote in the book uh, Bishop Tom Wright from England where he is saying there was a scholar who is writing scathing reviews of some of his colleagues and then he went to a conference and met some of them and he realized he actually liked them. Uh, so uh, he stopped going to the conferences. <laughs> well that's one way to answer That's right. Um, but it, the, the illustration there is that the person was not aware that how he was using his mental energy was not redemptive. It was, to, wow. it was critical and undercutting. And I find that uh, we need to have the time to have serious reflection so that we live in peace with God and enables us to live in peace with others. I, I talk uh, in the book various aspects of this mental renewal in terms of what we read, how we read, um, and taking time to assimilate what we read. It's, it's a reflective life that I think gives us a much greater depth of understanding not only theology and scripture, but understanding people and the right. life that we have together. Well, that speaks so much to pastors because, uh, you know, I know in our, uh, in Lutheran circles, pastors a lot of times um, can be critical of each other. Yes. And so often, if we actually engage each other, we find that, oh my gosh, we might actually like each other. And right. if, if we can engage each other at that uh, fraternal level, mm -hmm. at that uh, interpersonal level, that changes the whole playing field that um, we actually might actually renew each other's minds in a way that um, just changes the whole dynamic. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, so often when pastors or anyone in ministry and even in the marketplace, when we fail, it's because usually of our inner life is falling mm -hmm. apart. Um, that there are certain compulsions that we have. Um, I talk about how uh, often we feel compelled to be in control and to be right. Hmm. theologically correct mm -hmm. um, and the alternative is not to be wrong and sloppy you know right right but if it's the, if the compulsion is to uh, build up our pride then we we lose it even if we're correct and we lose right. that relational dynamic and uh, Augustine talked about that pride is the root of all sin and I think that's particularly true of anyone in the, the limelight anyone who's in leadership um, it's hard not to be proud because of the expectations and the adulations of followers. And so we have to be very rigorous about that in, in, our, in our inner life or else we'll capitulate to it. You also use the phrase dancing heart. Yes. Talk a little bit about what, unpack that phrase okay. for us a little bit. Well, that actually came from a course I took at Regent College out mm -hmm. in Vancouver. Uh, I was gonna take a course in theology and someone said, Bob, you're a left brain person. You need to do something more right brain. So I took this course called Quiet Heart, Dancing Heart that was actually on liturgical dance. So it was a real stretch for me <laughs> in, in more ways than one. And, uh, but it was tremendously helpful to be aware that uh, quietness, uh, a set settledness, um, gives more energy to really be expressive and expansive with people. And I was like a cup half full of water trying to spill over. Mm -hmm. And um, I realized that if I am not being a gift to others, if people don't like to see me coming, if I'm not uh, giving them the joy of dance of life, then I'm not 
probably going to be effective in ministry with them or in my leadership of them. So I realized that um, the image of a dance, I mean, a dance, you're disciplined. It's mm -hmm. not just mm -hmm. random. But you're aware of your partner. There's beauty. There's elegance. Um, that these are metaphors that really help me think of how do I lead? Do I lead with beauty? Do I lead with energy? Do right. I lead with this sense of complementarity? Hmm. Um, and to have a dancing heart uh, has just been inspiring to me to say, um, and sometimes, in fact, every Sunday part of my Sabbath practice is to go through uh, my, uh, what I call a rule of life, and part of it is to pray for that dancing heart of where hmm. I can be a source of joy to other people. Right. Well, and part of dancing is to lead. I mean, somebody yes, has to right, lead right. in a dance. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it would seem to be a, a powerful metaphor for leadership in some way. I like the word complementarity yes, uh, as part right. of it. So, Well, you devote an entire chapter to loneliness, and it does strike mm -hmm. me that leaders would tend to be lonely. Mm -hmm. um, why, would that, why is loneliness such a, a um, problem for leaders? Well, we aren't expected to be lonely because there's always people around us. And hmm. uh, often we're most lonely in a crowd hmm. because we're living with the expectations of people. We're living with, um, thank you, pastor, or that was great. And there's a vacuum or it, there's a vacuity sometimes in people's eyes. You realize that they're just saying that. And we say, what did we do? You know, we didn't feel very good about that sermon or that decision I made. Was that really good? Um, I find that some of the issues that most leaders experience uh, are often untalked about. For instance, uh, self-pity. Um, one of the things that drives leaders to the brink of disaster, if not disaster, is just feeling self-pity. I think that's why um, perks come into play, that people think we deserve this because right. we're up all night, we're working these long hours. Uh, sometimes there's a boredom in leadership. We're so busy. And, but we're bored at the same time. Henry Nowen has a great um, mm -hmm. book and statement on that. Uh, so uh, I think to recognize that it is lonely at the top, people don't fully understand what it means to be in charge uh, unless they've been there themselves and realize that there are internal compulsions that contribute to that that need to be dealt with or else we'll get more and more isolated and uh, do something that is not helpful in terms of trying to break that isolation. Right, right. Well, IVP has been routinely named as one of the best Christian workplaces around. Mm -hmm. And um, do you think the practice of shalom <laughs> has something to do with that? And, and talk a little bit about how that plays out. How, how do you cultivate that sure. in the workplace? Well, I use the, con the Old Testament concept of shalom, mm -hmm. which is more than just peace. It means the way things ought to be. Mm -hmm. um, and see that as a framework for uh, our uh, office demeanor, our, our culture. Uh, every new person who comes to IVP, I, I meet with them their first day if I'm in town. And we just go through some of the values of InterVarsity Press, of what's important in terms of relationships, what's important in terms of dignity, of treating one another, uh, what's important about being honest. Sometimes Christian organizations and churches uh, can actually be dishonest because we, we're afraid to acknowledge wrong and deal with problems. So I want to give people permission right up front that if you see something wrong or something's funny, talk about it. Mm -hmm. don't, don't hide it. Don't try to pretend that it's not there. Uh, we do things in a very collaborative manner. Uh, we try to involve as many people as possible in decision making. Uh, we try to do that with, with women and men and people of different ethnic backgrounds. 
and I, I think the awareness of honoring one another. Um, we talk about honoring our customers and honoring our vendors and honoring our authors. Um, what can we do to honor people? Mm -hmm. And that's just a whole different uh, framework than uh, how can we prove that we're right? right. Um, you know, it, it's a different motivation yeah, because you're yeah. thinking of other people. And the idea of shalom, of what would make this a better place to be? Uh, we have a receptionist who's been there a number of years and she sees her job as being in charge of first impressions. <laughs> and so that motivates her of how can she, and people come in, uh, delivery truck people, that just want to talk to her because she's so right. welcoming. And so that's, the, that's what has come out of that. Right, that's, wow, that's amazing. Um, you're very honest about some of your own failures mm. uh, professionally. And so why did you decide to include those in the book? That was not easy. Um, but yet we all fail. Mm -hmm. And if we don't have the freedom to talk about failure, uh, we live in denial or we live in pretense. And those really rob the soul of spiritual vitality. Uh, I had a very uh, difficult situation where essentially I was fired from my job. Um, there are a lot of circumstances, but I find that most people in leadership have been fired or have lost their job, whether it's because of downsizing. Uh, even Jonathan Edwards, you know, the greatest right. theologian in American history, was fired from being a pastor. And uh, so it's not always necessarily your own failure, but it feels like failure, whether it's self-inflicted or as part of the circumstances. And uh, dealing with failure um, and the loneliness that comes out of that, uh, I think is a desperately needed for leaders, uh, other than having to go to a counselor, um, to just say, yeah, we're not perfect. Um, one of the problems I think we see in the current political situation is people expect all leaders to be perfect, and there's yeah. no sense that we fail too, or you know, we have we have our problems. Uh, so the uh, probably the most helpful part of that whole process, when I, I lost my job, it was a senior position. We had we had an organizational change and. Um, was in a small way identifying with Christ's prayer, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I mean, it really felt that God had forsaken me. I worked hard, I thought I had done the right thing, and it didn't work. Yeah. Um, now, in retrospect, I saw how some of my compulsions were contributing to that not working. Right. I had overly identified myself with the job I was in, so I, I didn't have good boundaries in terms of personal identity. Um, and there's no way that you know, what Christ's suffering were, were anything similar to what I was, but to know that, that Jesus experienced that the same way, that sense of isolation from God was actually a great encouragement that mm -hmm. suffering is part of leadership, it's part of the Christian calling, and uh, we need to recognize that and share it together. Yeah. Well, and it strikes me just as much as shalom is part of the workplace, especially for Christian organizations, forgiveness is part of the oh, workplace my goodness, too. Yes. Yeah, I think that may be the most uh, under-practiced uh, and most essential part of effective leadership is the ability to forgive and to create a climate where other people are forgiving as well. Yeah. You know, it's the only uh, promise in Scripture that's associated with the condition of, mm -hmm. uh, that we're not forgiven if we don't forgive others. Right. And there's just a lot of Christians that are walking around that are guilty. I think that's why there's so much antagonism and hostility because we are not free people. We're under this bondage of, of our own sense of self-righteousness and not forgiving other people. 
And I think it was uh, Lou Smeads out at Fuller who said mm, something yeah. to the effect that when we forgive someone, we release them from a great burden. Right. And that person is us. Yes, yes, yeah. <laughs> and so um, the Lord's Prayer has been tremendously important to me in praying through each phrase of that, and particularly that aspect of can I truly forgive people and live in that pattern of being a forgiving person. Yeah, yeah. Well, it strikes me too that that practice of forgiveness then also is what empowers us to be able to practice gratitude yes. as a leader. Yes. Uh, I quote Max Dupree, who used to be chairman of the board at Herman Miller uh, Furniture Company and has been a mentor to me. And he defined leadership as uh, defining reality and saying thank you, uh, which is, I think, one of the best definitions of leadership, where you're talking about truth. You're saying this is what is real. Um, but you live in a spirit of saying thank you to people. Yeah. And uh, gratitude is an energizing uh, attribute. When, mm -hmm. when we are being grateful, um, it just gives energy to other people, and it helps us, too, rather than being undercutting of other people. Uh, so I have tried to, uh, and this is a discipline. It's not just I'm going to be happy, 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 or right. I'm going to just glad hand people. But it's really uh, something praying for that God would give us, filling us with his spirit, that we would be grateful people and see what he is doing in our lives. And it's a releasing right. attitude right. that God gives to us. Well, I think it's uh, been pretty self-evident uh, for those of who are watching this interview, uh, how the book is going to be helpful to pastors and leaders. But as you've uh, been talking with people and, and been uh, seeing the book out, out and about, how, how do you think pastors can use the book in their ministry? Well, uh, I know of uh, several pastors that have used it with working with some of their um, pastoral teams if they have a big church. I know of one pastor who is uh, brought together some of the business people in his congregation mm -hmm. that are, are in leadership to talk about, uh, which actually is a wonderful mix, mm -hmm. because I find that people in the marketplace who are sensitive and thoughtful Christians uh, often feel cut out from uh, some of the more spiritual material or can't afford to go into retreats. They don't have the time to do that. And to have a pastor being able to interact with them can mm -hmm. be a wonderful discipling thing for a pastor. and. Uh, leadership team if they're if the business people are not thinking about these spiritual issues sure. um, the the other thing that that I mentioned in there particularly um, is a, applicable to churches as well as organizations is creating a climate that is healthy um, a lot of churches have a toxic climate because there's criticism um, and organizations live that way and so I sometimes define a role of a leader of being an organizational ecologist mm -hmm. of uh, how do you deal with the systems that are unhealthy and how do you create healthy systems and so if a pastor is dealing leading a church where there's all these subgroups and people that are uh, not really communicating well together they can talk about that and you use that of how do we create a healthy system here and that may be language that the non clergy people in the congregation can un understand and identify with. Sure, sure. Um, And that can be a, a good uh, on-ramp to talk about spirituality and the marketplace. Great, great. How can we find out more? Well, you can uh, get the book at uh, any place that you, you buy books. I'm okay. sure your bookstore has it. <laughs> yep. um, also, our website, uh, intervarsityivpress.com. And there's also more information on the website there if you want to pursue it that way. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, we talked about gratitude in, uh, in the interview, and we are grateful that you joined us here at CJ Currents. And uh, thank you for joining us at Concordia Journal Currents. I'm Travis Scholl.